this is Jack Fleischer of Battleship Retention. I'm here at the Los Angeles Film Festival with David Fenster, David Nordstrom, and uh, executive producer Phil Lord, director, star, uh, executive producer of the film Pincus. And uh, thank you, gentlemen, for being here today. How are you doing? Good. Good. Great. Good. All right. Uh, well, let's start kind of at the beginning uh, for you guys. What are some of the, the films and filmmakers that helped uh, inspire your interest in working in film? And maybe even more directly, what, what inspired Pincus? Or did anything that you grew up with really come into this movie? Hmm. Yeah, this one, it's hard to point to specific filmic references. I think with my last film, Trona, that Dave and I worked on together, it was really easy to point to like Antonioni, mm-hmm. someone who, who was heavily influential on that film. I'm sure this film is influenced by everything I've seen. It's it, I just wasn't thinking of too many specific references. Um, uh, I definitely watched like Eric Romer films and with Stillman films and films with a lot of dialogue in them uh, before I made it because my last film didn't have very much dialogue and I was interested in at least seeing films that I thought were good films that were dialogue heavy Um, but you know I can't point to any specific influences for this do you even have any just favorite filmmakers Oh, um, do you guys want to chime in? Please, guys. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I like them all. David Fenster and David Nordstrom. Good Lord. Chris Miller. Just keep it totally in breath here. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I like so many. It's, I used to be, have like some pat answer for that. Well, now I just... I know, I know the three of you guys have known each other for some mm-hmm. time. Uh, is there any movie that maybe the three of you first spotted over hmm. in particular or something? Maybe like Badlands or something? Yeah. yeah. I saw that because of you, yeah. Hmm. That's probably true. It's as much as an influence as anything, probably. Yeah. We all like Point Break, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. sure. We were all into Point Break and Roadhouse. Yeah. Well, have you seen Point Break, break Live? <laughs> no, I haven't. Yeah. It's good, though. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, maybe it is the Bieber trilogy. trilogy. Let's yeah. say that. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. It's Trent Harris. Okay. Uh, he lives in Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah. And it's the, it's a three part film. I think it won Sundance it was like in the nineties or something. Oh, when they, but, when they put it all together, you mean? Yeah. He he originally shot this film kind of by accident. He was testing out a video camera in front of a TV station that he worked out in Salt Lake City. It was like the first beta cam that they got or something. And this this character wanders up uh, Grooving Gary Grooving Gary and he uh, and he ends up inviting them to Beaver, Utah to film a talent show that he's in where he's an Olivia Newton-John impersonator called Olivia Newton-John Bomb and so the first segment is like 30 minutes and it's a documentary and then he remakes the film two times and the first time it's with uh, Sean, Penn. Sean Penn and the second time was with Crispin Glover before these guys were had been in anything it was like before he made, it, of he made it an AFI yeah and it's weird it gets like more and more polished and more and more fictionalized each time but it's also how the truth comes out of the story each time so it's really amazing you yeah. learn more about it every time and it's such a great uh, investigation of you know different styles of filmmaking mm-hmm. <laughs> and since I come from animation, what it means to trace a drawing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and still have let it be its own thing, mm-hmm. um, and the and ethics of it too, like, yeah, because the, what he ended up doing by by 
basically Trent Harris put kind of put on the show so that he could film this guy doing his act. You know, he does a lot of impersonations. He's actually pretty good at a lot of impersonations. Strangely enough, his worst one is Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> it bears like the least resemblance to any of the, the major figures. So she, he ends up performing in front of the town. It's kind of like the Evelyn. I think it's an opening act of different people in the town doing their weird stuff, and then. He does this performance and it kind of creates this huge problem in his life because people start making fun of him because he's dressing in women's clothing and they're calling him gay and all this kind of stuff. And it kind of ruins this guy's life. And then Trent Harris is kind of dealing with his guilt over it in a couple of the subsequent sections of the movie. Yeah. Every time I teach, I try to show that in film, yeah. especially in documentary classes, because there's like so many things you can talk about. Around you literally the whole class on that. Yeah. And then it's crazily enough, I mean, I don't know if this is substantiated, but I kind of believe it. It seems that by impersonating both Crispin Glover and Sean Penn and impersonating Groove and Gary, they took aspects of this real character and they put him into these really iconic roles in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High mm -hmm. and then Back to the Future when he's playing George McFly. Yeah, so photos of George McFly and... Um, yeah, it's cool that this weird art influence by Gary. And now Pink is, <laughs> which is sort of well, like a weird, it's that backwards, you're starting with a narrative movie and using all these documentary modes. That, that is sort of blend the two things. I definitely wanted to talk about, because Pink is, alright, so Pink is the story of uh, a young man dealing with his father who has Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. And I know you are, are basically in that same situation with your fa father, Paul, who's also uh, playing the father in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was wondering, uh, last night we were talking about how it started off as documentary. Where did you go, how did you get from documentary to a narrative film like this? Mm -hmm. And what was it that, that brought about that switch? Well, it really started as both. It started as a, as a script about kind of a new age vision quest, and it started off as just footage I had of my dad around the house and, and interviews that we did together. And those two projects were not working on their own, and so those two things fused into, into one project where, where, in the end, it is, it is a fictional film that, that uses this documentary footage. How far along did you had gotten in, in either of those projects? Um, I had been working on this, the, the way I write is weird fragments just sort of come into my head and, and end up as a stream of notes that may or may not have much to do with each other and then I try to sort of figure out what the connecting tissue is between these things and some things have to be jettisoned and saved for later or never used again. But uh, So that started, I mean, really several years ago and then, but the really writing in earnest maybe started... Um, a year before, or not even nine months, a year before before we started shooting, um, and then the, the documentary shooting stuff started kind of at the same time because that was when I moved back to Miami. So they were kind of going on simultaneously. Hmm. And uh, when did you guys get involved, David and Phil? I can't. I, we can't. We haven't established a good timeline. <laughs> it's kind of almost all the same. I mean, it's part of that same process of like Dave writing little notes. We all. I think we're all pretty close, you know, in, in terms of keeping keeping in touch with what people are working on, and you know, especially you and Dave, me and Dave. And so Dave would just talk about a lot of these different product ideas with film, and also with me, and. Um, 
kind of grew gradually, I think. Mm-hmm. And you guys had already been investigating stuff like this in the short that you made. Yeah. Yeah. Dave and I made a short got the call. That was part of our friend Mike Plant's uh, lunch film series where he buys filmmakers lunch and then you have to make a film that costs the same thing as the lunch. So I think ours was like $30 or something, our budget. And yeah, it was about portals and unexplainable yeah. phenomenon. And Navels to the infinite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now, that, that actually brings up another interesting point. There is a, definitely an element of mystical search in the story in terms of the son trying to figure out exactly you know how he's going to cope with his father's cope with his father's disease and also eventually his, his death it seems like uh, and I was wondering was there ever a temptation to take this uh, away from the realistic aspect and this is a very realistic movie mm-hmm. and move it into the, the surreal at all or bring any of those more mystical or otherworldly elements I mean I think the way I wanted to set it up was nothing happens in the movie uh, that you couldn't debate is just a, nothing's mystical is happening. Right. Uh, I try to give the sense of the possibility of those of metaphysical things or whatever you want to call them is kind of hovering around the, the fringes but um, I always wanted it to be really grounded in a certain kind of reality and um, and suggest the possibility of these other things. And maybe it's just that the world's more interesting if these other things exist, or at least you entertain the possibility that there are other dimensions and ghosts and whatever you feel like thinking about. It's kind of like Picnic at Hanging Rock, kind of. Mm-hmm. You see that movie, right? Sure. Yeah. Never. That was kind of an end. I watched you. We were talking about that. Right. I think yeah. we watched that before. Yeah. 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 So... Yeah, it never would. I mean, the different points in the process we talked about maybe getting into fully surreal areas, but I think in, in the end, I, I just like it to be a suggestion of these things and, and have occurrences that are debatable, whether what, what they are. And hopefully, in, if you're watching the film and you and you when you think about what your take is on those things, it, it'll instigate something interesting, you know, and it'll show you something about how you think about the world, in the best case scenario, you know, and, when, and maybe it'll hopefully help you reevaluate those things or look at them in a different light or something. I think, I, I think the movie makes a good argument for the necessity of metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like that's what you guys were getting at. You were like, you know, here's this guy, he's dealing with an impossible tragedy, and there's no other way to evaluate that. Mm-hmm. And how do you ascribe meaning to that? And trying to find all these different modes that describe, you know, wonder or magic mm-hmm. in the world, or some sort of explanation for how something so shitty can happen to people. Well, I think both of us have that, like, the real strong desire to want to believe that there are things way beyond what we can perceive, but we're also pretty cynical in other regards, so it is like this constant back and forth. Yeah. And I mean, we're just, that's our culture, is to, only, is to only respect sort of scientific fact. Right, we now have a very you know, secularized, skeptical kind of flying spaghetti monster culture, right? <laughs> and yet, there, I think there's a, a necessity for that kind of 
magic. And if you don't have it in the world, you seek it. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't matter if it's real or not, it's just that it seems so necessary for survival. Yeah. I, I, more and more, I just think whatever the most compelling story is, is what people like. Whatever yeah. to, to them is the best story is what they'll buy. And if the science is serving that up or the church is serving that up, people just gravitate towards story that works for them. But you can't, what you can't have is nothing. Right. Then you just wither and die. That's what I think. Yeah. So I know that uh, a lot of the, the actors involved in this, I think you're the, are you the only uh, actual performing actor who's in this and everyone else is, for the most part? Um, Dave is the only person with acting experience. Yeah. Acting experience, okay. Experience. I think everyone is... Um, Performing equally, which I think was, was what's cool about working with non-actors, which is a weird way. I think saying non-professional mm-hmm. is better, but or not trained or experienced, because um, it's interesting. I mean, if, if the person feels comfortable and they, they know what they're doing, I mean, you kind of direct non-professional actors the same way you do professional actors. It's like, here's what the scene's about. Here's what you need to do. Act, you know, this is what uses your action. Um, and when people feel comfortable doing that, they really, I mean, your mom, for instance, like, really kind of jumped into the, the role she plays, and Paul as well. Dietmar, especially, I think, loved to, to, to do it. Mm-hmm. I had fun doing it. Yeah. So, I mean, also, as we've been uh, touched on earlier, uh, this is based on reality. Uh, but it, you know, it sort of changed uh, through the course of the project. But uh, how much of this is real, and how much of it is more fictional? Um, you know, certain things were changed for this story to make it more interesting. And um, you know, in reality, my mom is the primary caregiver for my dad. Uh, I'm just sort of a backup occasionally. When, you know, in the years when I've lived there, and. Um, you know, I think that character is an amount of, of myself. There's definitely a lot of my internal process in there. And then and then I think David Nordstrom is, is part of that character. I think my mom's part of that character. I think my friend Gavin is a little bit in there, who's, who's a contractor who lives in Miami, who's married to a yoga instructor. And, uh, you know, so there's little bits of friends and family in there. And, um, and the situation is... Uh, fictionalized, but more just to highlight certain aspects. So now, when it came down to the actual filmmaking, now you're the writer and you're the director, and you, uh, David Nordstrom, are you know basically playing a character who's based, at least in part, on on you. And the question I have is, was there ever a time uh, when you were, say, improvising uh, dialogue or something like that, where you had to maybe a disagreement over what it is that you were doing? Uh, uh, what do you think, Dave? I mean, there was, there was time, I think it was less about fundamental things in, in the process and more about just... Just general killers of friends. You know, get on each other's nerves occasionally. Yeah, exactly. And you know, when you're living with someone in a small space. Yeah, I slept on his couch for two weeks. Yeah. Thing, and you were always editing at night. I was like, I want to chat roulette. <laughs> I didn't know anyone in my house. I went to the portal of chat roulette. <laughs> no, it was kind of, I, I think that uh, I, we kind of like intentionally kept that kind of 
energy going in a weird way, that kidding kind of energy and that kind of like attention to a certain degree because at least I think I was because it was making us laugh but it was I think you can see it on screen the, the character of Pincus is kind of like he's kind of funny or whatever but he's also he's really disturbed and kind of a little bit passive aggressive you know he's kind of always needling people he's uncomfortable with himself and so I think does that make sense? <laughs> it feels like we were trying to like harness that harness that energy and I was definitely harnessing a lot of what I'd seen Dave go go through just observing him through this whole process and when we talked at length about everything in the film and outside of the film that I could sort of draw upon think in the playing part. Yeah, we knew each other really well, so and I trusted Dave. I mean the first, I remember the first couple of days it's always weird, you're just sort of like from I hadn't shot anything fictional in a really long time, so you just get out the weird kinks and the nervous energy and then I mean after that the whole that's the, like the first day. I mean I just we just did it. I don't know, there wasn't a lot of discussion. Yeah. Do you have any idea of how much you've actually shot in the, the making of this? I think we shot, um, I mean, if you include some of the documentary footage, I think everything together was like 20 hours or 18 hours or something. Well, and I know uh, you were saying last night that you you did several edits and I guess someone was saying 10 different endings that you, <laughs> you went to. Did I do that? I don't know. Someone I must have said that. different endings um, and yeah it ended at a different point and and we were able to experiment with a few different ones before settling on the, the one and I guess uh, the last big question I have here is with a film that is so personal you know and dealing with even you know your friends and, and stuff like that is there any part and, and your family too your father you know playing an integral part in this you know uh, was there any time when the sort of your love and care of your friends and the story as as it is a personal story uh, interfered, do you think, with uh, maybe the story itself? Were there any sort of debates or arguments that you had as to what would make a better movie versus what you thought was... Mm, I think so. I think so. Yeah? I mean, I might remember it, but there'd be times that there was discussions about what Paul was up to. You know, I mean, what, what he was equal to, to, you know, in terms of the production schedule, like we oh, like not worrying about not pushing him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you guys would get into the scene and kind of argue in a way, and you both were acting, but I wasn't sure, and it would, and I would get a little uncomfortable, and maybe yeah. stop it. The tension would come to a head, and then, and then we'd kind of like back away from it for a while, mm-hmm. and then approach another day or in a different way or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that that was an issue just because of just the you know the state of his health and and the sort of the means of production. But if it wasn't my dad and it was just some other guy who had Parkinson's that wanted to be in the film, I would have felt way more comfortable oh, yeah. doing anything. I mean, right. so in a way, it was great. I mean, yeah. you're the only man. one with the authority to to shoot, do something like this. Yeah, and I knew what he'd more or less be comfortable with, and I you know I just know him well enough to know if something's bothering him or if. He's uncomfortable, so. But I also got the impression that he like it was a really special time for him. Yes, yeah. he liked having a job to do and like 
dude, this, you know, it been a while since, you know, you could take part in some integral. Yeah, it's an integral part in some process, and and you kind of give us both a hard time about it. But I think that's just the way it is. He's that kind of, kind of that sense of humor, you know, it's yeah. salty and, yeah, and stubborn and stuff. But yeah, I think you're right. I think he, you know, he didn't want to retire when he did, and he doesn't get to do much anymore. And and this was something he could do and was really good at, and and so I think he did enjoy yeah. it. I think you're right. And uh, one last thing. Uh, here at the film festival, you guys are seeing a whole bunch of stuff, and hopefully and we'll see anything more. Is there anything that you have seen lately, either here or outside of here, that you'd recommend that other film fans get into and take a look at? I liked uh, this Russian movie I saw a couple weeks ago called Elena. That was here. Oh, I heard that was awesome. Yeah, it's good. I've been living in a town in Texas that doesn't have a movie theater. So there was actually a great film festival there and saw a lot of amazing stuff, but it wasn't kind of uh, new release type stuff. Uh, what do you feel like? It's 21 Jump Street. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> film. Glad you had a chance to move on. I just saw The Bugger Banza again. <laughs> Couldn't believe how amazing that movie was. Um, I always thought Staying Alive for the first time. Or no, what was the first one? Saturday Night Fever? Uh, I didn't get them mixed up. I saw Saturday, yeah, Saturday Night Fever, the first one. I, mean, I, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I heard it's amazing. I know Dave, Dave's not a fan of, uh, of what's his name? John Bess. Oh, John Bolton. John Bolton. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan. You should watch this. It's really good. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, he's in good movies. That's pretty good. Bullet Collection. Bullet Collection. Bullet well, face off. Face off. <laughs> it's excellent in, in uh, Yeah, and Luke's Talking. The whole the trilogy of Luke's Talking. <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> David Fenster, David Nordstrom, uh, and Phil Lord. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Uh, this has been Jack Fleischer at the LA Film Festival for Battleship Retention. Thank you.